Hello and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 27. I'm one of your hosts, Hector Marrero. And I'm another host, Kip Clark. And today our topic is storytelling and comedy. And we have with us a guest, Mike Jest. Hey guys. So Mike, how would you like to start off this topic? Maybe tell us why you think it's an important topic for discussion. Well, that's a good question. Uh, I think storytelling and comedy is becoming more important than it has been in previous years. There was a big sketch and improv boom recently, which is less related to storytelling than, for example, a sitcom or a movie. And I think things are going back the other way. Okay. Would you be willing to give us maybe an example of great storytelling and comedy? I know before the show we talked a bit about Seinfeld. Maybe that would be a good place to start. Yeah. Well, I think to start out talking about storytelling and comedy, you have to talk about The Herald, which is the it's a long form, a basic long form improvisational structure, but it's also applied to movies and sitcoms. So in its most basic form, a herald is the comedic exploration of a theme. So in an improv show, you'll get a suggestion and you'll take that suggestion and flesh it out into an entire show. Okay, so what would the structure of a herald maybe look like? So the structure of a herald is you get a word suggestion from the audience and you take that and a member of the group does a monologue. So this is an improvised story or uh, memory that they relate to the audience and that's gonna serve as a basis of inspiration for the rest of the set. So from the monologue, you do a three-piece opening beat. So that means you do three scenes, they're distinct base scenes, and these three scenes open up the world you're going to be exploring. So for example, if the monologue was about a ship captain, you might do one scene in the army with a captain, one scene at the beach, and one on a cruise ship. Okay, and then to help get maybe the audience and myself back to, because I know we talked about Seinfeld, I keep bringing it up, Seinfeld mirrors this, correct? Right, Seinfeld is a herald, which is really interesting to think about. So in the beginning of Seinfeld, he does stand up. He performs a monologue. Then they have three supporting characters, George, Elaine, and Kramer, and those are the three opening beats. Each storyline is an opening beat of that herald. Then in in an improvisational herald, you have a game slot, which is where you, it's not a scene, but it's a place where all the members of the group come together and explore the theme of the Herald, and that's what they do at the coffee shop. They all go to the coffee shop, talk about what's going on in their lives, then we get the second beat, which is three more scenes from those supporting characters' storylines, then they all go back to the coffee shop, then it all ties up at the end. So what are other structures of comedy outside of the Herald form? Sure. Well, there are a lot of improvisational forms. There's Ask Cat, which is UCB's famous Sunday show, which is they do monologues throughout. So they'll do a, mon- a monologue, then a series of scenes, which will then inspire another monologue, another series of scenes. Oh, there's a form called documentary, where you start out speaking to the audience, like The Office, like a, or Parks and Rec, like that kind of talking to the documentary camera. Documentary style. Right, documentary. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and then you do scenes based on what they're talking about. There's a form called Small Town, which is every scene is set in some kind of environment. So like an amusement park, you'd have a scene at the hayride and a scene at the candy shop. 
So when I think about the need for storytelling and comedy, you talk about perhaps like a growing demand, almost in an economic sense, I feel, is the case that people aren't going to pay for comedy that doesn't involve storytelling in some sense. To me, storytelling is important because it grounds what's happening and it makes it easier to follow or it keeps you with the comedian or whatever storytelling person is giving you that entertainment because it's it's a thread, it's a narrative, and you stay with it as opposed to fragmented jokes that don't necessarily link to one another. But that's my understanding and my perspective. I'd be curious to hear with you guys why you think storytelling and comedy work well together. I think you put it really well. One thing that's happening is that the unit of comedy is is returning to the story. For a while, uh, especially on sitcoms, a half-hour sitcom, there was the sitcom structure, which is not exact. Seinfeld, I think, does a really good job of it. It's a variation of that Herald structure. But basically the idea of you have an A story, a B story, and maybe a C story, and you switch off between those until you get to the end, and all the characters have to be in it. And I think that's changing. So I think Louis is probably the most famous example of that. He doesn't tell one story over one episode. He doesn't take the half hour as the length every, every one of his stories will take to tell. So he will tell four five-minute stories, or one story will take six episodes. And... I think that's a good thing for comedy. I think the flexibility that we have now with cable and streaming services like Netflix mean that you can do that, and it's, in the end, going to lead to a better product. I'm curious. Recently on YouTube, there was a video that came up called Too Many Cooks. And Too Many Cooks is this style of comedy which is very surreal. It's very out there. It's also like very in your face, but it doesn't explain itself. It, it just hits you, and then you have to process it. So how does comedy like that, which is more, I guess you can call it random or surreal, what role does it play in the state of comedy today? Well, I think that's basically a sketch. I mean, and more basically than a sketch, it's a game, which is what you explore in a sketch. So if a herald is exploring a premise, a sketch is exploring a game. <laughs> you take the premise, and so for in this example, what if the theme song of a TV show never ended, and you just keep heightening that? heightening that game. So the bigger and crazier it gets while still being this one game. Is that is that helpful? Game is a tough word because it means a lot of different things even within comedy. But basically it's non-scenic. In a sketch, which is what a sketch is, so in cowbell it's just how loud and, cr- and overweight can he be while playing this cowbell. So I'm just going to take it back for yeah. for a moment here. How did you get into comedy in the first place? And what is it about comedy and storytelling that resonates with you? And why is it that you pursue these things? That's a good question. I don't know. I've always loved comedy, as far as I can remember. I think my first experience with at least stand-up comedy was my mom was listening to NPR, and Steve Martin came on. They were playing, I think they were doing an interview with him, and they played clips of his stand-up. And I was like dying laughing. And I asked my mom, like, who is this guy? And she's like, Steve Martin. I said, what is he doing? Because I had never heard stand-up before, and especially his stand-up, which is so crazy and surreal. So I love Steve Martin, and my mom bought me his Wild and Crazy Guy, which is his, probably his most famous album. And then I got Bill Cosby, Woody Allen, only, <laughs> only the controversial ones. <laughs> No, but Jerry Seinfeld, Bob Newhart I love, I think is underrated. Um, and I, so I fell in love first through stand-up, mostly albums, so just listening to them. And then TV, SNL was a huge thing for me. TV, a bit of Fry and Laurie, Monty Python. 
So another thing that occurs to me when thinking about both storytelling and comedy, because they have a lot in common, I think both appeal to sort of fundamental aspects of human nature. I think people in general understand what a story is. I think we're entertained by it. And I think comedy itself, you didn't need to know who Steve Martin was to laugh at what he was saying. He was just funny. And I think it just appeals to people on maybe an inexplicable level. And I think also both can be very social. We share stories with other people. We share jokes with other people. I think it's a way we communicate and bond. But I'd be curious to know, because I think you're well-versed to a degree in both, how they differ or maybe where storytelling and comedy can't be combined. Well, I don't know if they ever can't be combined. I think a story told by a funny person will be funny. Could you repeat the question? I guess I'm just curious to know if there are any areas where you think they don't share those qualities anymore, where they're they're too different to be recombined. And if you feel that they don't have those differences, that's valid too. No, but I think that is, I think too many cooks and I think game and sketch are examples that are comedy without being storytelling. And I think that's intentional. I think the goal of a sketch is not to tell a story and shouldn't be. Uh, and that you can break the rules of the world you've established, which you shouldn't do in storytelling for the joke. You should you would sell out the the reality for a joke in a sketch, which is something you wouldn't do in a in a scene or a story. And so, in a story, you're maybe showing a reality, maybe not always commenting on it, but I think maybe you'd say that comedy often applies a critique to a reality, or can perhaps. Yeah, I think definitely. I think Seinfeld's a really good example of that. I think Seinfeld is. I think underrated as social satire, which is there's a theory that says that political satire on a large scale, so the kind of thing that The Daily Show does or The Colbert Report did, is largely ineffective because the president or members of Congress are already set up to draw criticism. They're scapegoats by design in a way. And in fact, making fun of them only reinforces the status quo and that we're admitting that they have this power and they're a figure that needs to be parodied or mocked. So to really effectively satirize modern society, you have to get at the everyday person. You have to show what's stupid and selfish about the everyday Democrat or Republican. And that's something Seinfeld does really well. Absolutely. Well, you bring up showing how people might be stupid or selfish, and I think a lot of people might recoil when they think that comedians are satirists would do that to them. Do you think comedy in that sense can be dangerous? I think comedy can be powerful because of that. I don't know about dangerous. I think it's necessary. I think people, and I think it's not as scary as people like to think. I mean, especially now we look at Seinfeld and don't think of it as social satire. I mean, we look at, I think we look at a lot of the things they do as normal. There's an episode where Elaine is dating a guy who loves Jerry's parents. And the whole episode is about how weird it is that he's being nice to Jerry's elderly parents, which is weird. I mean, we all look at that and we're like, that's crazy. But the characters are sociopaths. And <laughs> what they're bothered by in that episode is that this guy's being nice for no reason. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. Well, Mike, I mean, we or perhaps I should say I am certainly asking you a lot of questions. Do you have questions for either of us pertaining to comedy and storytelling that you'd be curious to hear our input on? Well, as a comedian... I'm in favor of freedom of speech in comedy to an extreme degree, I think. I think everything should be protected. But questions have been raised recently, especially after the attack in Paris. And I was wondering what you guys think as people who aren't necessarily trying to do comedy as a career. Well, yeah, I mean, I personally agree. I think that 
all freedom of speech should be protected. I think that any satire, any comedy should be thought out beforehand. If you're going to be insulting to a race or religion or whatnot, there should be a message or something you're trying to say or get out of it. And the reason I say that there should be a message and there should be something that someone can get out of it, despite the religion or race or what have you, I think that there's oversaturation of comedy or satire just in wherever we receive our content from. So I think that any comedy should be thought out beforehand, but not restricted, certainly not restricted. Yes, I agree with both of you that there should be freedom of speech which protects comedy to a large degree. However, I don't think all comedy is necessarily satire. And I do think, maybe not in this case necessarily, but that there are instances in comedy where people prey upon the weak or the innocent for an easy laugh. I'm not saying that's the case here, but I think in that case, I don't know that freedom of speech should be withdrawn, but certainly those people, I think, could be criticized for going after and attacking, socially attacking, that is, individuals for the sake of comedy. That said, I don't think all critical comedy is always satire, and I think it's very easy to say after the fact, upon receiving complaints or even worse about your comedy, to retroactively say that it was satire from the beginning because I don't think that's always true and I think it can be a very easy defense of what you were doing. In the case of Charlie Hebdo, I think it's interesting because they used satire, arguably comedy, I'm not sure, I haven't actually read the issue or the magazine, but I know that they portrayed or depicted the Prophet Muhammad, but they used satire to criticize certain aspects of Islam and while I think that certain discussions should be had about things that happen in our world that people shouldn't blindly take things, I think religion and social criticism through the lens of satire or comedy is interesting because I think that there are certain freedoms that people expect religions to have. Personally, I'm not someone who is religious, but I respect religious freedoms. However, I think that people should be reminded, or perhaps it should be said, that religions, although they might connect to a higher power, are man-made institutions to connect to that higher power. And I don't think those man-made institutions are beyond critical approach. I'm not saying attack or just blatant falsehoods. And I'm not saying to speak ill of people's belief in a higher power, but the way they go about it, I think, can be the topic for social criticism. But I also say that as someone who's not religious, so it's not a vulnerability I have. And I'm very aware that if I were religious, I might feel differently. But I do think, as a comedian, one needs to think of what vulnerabilities one has when going into it. Because if you personally identify with the majority of things, maybe you're not as vulnerable when it comes to telling jokes. And so maybe you have, and I'm not saying this is true of you, Mike, but for a comedian, I think it could be possible that certain comedians have less empathy and therefore might not be as good at detecting what an audience might find funny or even socially witty. Absolutely. I mean, that's a tough consideration. As a white guy, I know that I'm a lot less sensitive. As a, as a white guy who's not particularly religious, I know I'm way less sensitive than most of the members of my audience. And I respect you for admitting that. I think that's a very, I mean, yeah, it's fair to, to look yourself in the mirror and understand what you are. It's very legitimate. So because of that, I mean, I, I think the only consideration is for your audience. And that's only a consideration if you care about your audience. So if you're making something for other people to watch, and you care about their reaction, obviously you have to tailor things to them. And I think there are also moral obligations to not attack victims of abuse. But again, that's a personal choice. I think that's a, 
that's personal morality rather than anything we can put on other people. So, you know, I think if a guy wants to tell sexist, racist jokes in a room by himself, that should be absolutely protected. Or in a room of, you know, like-minded maniacs. But if he wants to do it on TV, he's going to have to change the content. Absolutely. I mean, when you talk about the economic factor that certain people do it for a living, I'm reminded of something that I've learned in a class recently called Restoration Drama, which focuses on theater in mid-1600s in England to about 1800. And there was a practice in which people wouldn't always pay for a show until the third act. So audiences could come in of any class, come to the theater. It was really boisterous and loud, and people were very aggressive towards these actors. And if they didn't like what was going on in the first two acts, they left. It was free. It's like you're streaming, you know, two-thirds of an episode of a show. And I find that fascinating that they were allowed to do that. And, and people did it, and surely some of these shows must have made money or survived somehow because we've, we've read them 200 years later. But I think that's fascinating. I do think economics often shows us what people find funny. Obviously, there are hundreds of movies out there that I find really not funny that make a lot of money because I guess that's something that people are into. Let's Be Cops, I think, is not a particularly brilliant movie. But I don't think it made that much money. No, you're right, and I don't think it did. It actually came out very poorly this summer, right around the time of the Ferguson riots when those were starting. So I think socially, the the producers and the staff that put it out when they did had bad luck there. But yeah, I think economics is, has a very interesting tie with comedy, and it's just very fascinating to me. To bring it to another point, I, I think that's fascinating, This what you learned in restoration drama, that people could choose to not pay for what content that they were receiving. I guess that put an obligation on the actors and the, who I guess the directors as well at those times to make sure that they were producing content that was mm, as valuable as possible or as engaging as possible. Well, and they had to have a th- they had to have a cliffhanger at the end of the second act to make them want to stay. And I think that kind of dovetails back into storytelling because I think the reason we're seeing new kinds of storytelling in comedy is that it's economically viable, so people can go out and film stuff. That's why there was a big boom with YouTube's web series. Broad City is now huge on Comedy Central, and that started as a web series. Or streaming services where you don't have to tailor to a commercial break. I mean, the TV structure that exists is largely, there's a cliffhanger like there would be at, before this, the third act of a restoration play. There's a cliffhanger before a commercial because they need people to come back after. So there are you know, the art, artificial economic constraints on storytelling now as there have ever been. And that's what the biggest effect on storytelling is when you're... De- doing comedy for an audience, their expectations, their tastes, and the constraints of whoever's paying you to do it are going to bleed into the work. And so now this is a question to both of you, since both of you are comedians. Is there a standard that should be set for comedy? We talk about freedom of speech, and we talk about content, and we talk about economic viability, but what would determine a certain quality of comedy? And should that even be determined? Like, should there be a certain standard which all comedy strives for? I don't know that there should be a standard that all comedy strives for necessarily. However, I personally think that comedy is in many ways a coping mechanism. And I don't say that condescendingly. I think it helps us understand our world better and reevaluate. And if someone makes a really offensive joke that an audience absolutely recoils at, that's a sign. And it tells us why we're so uncomfortable and maybe it causes some people some intellectuals in the crowd to rethink why it makes them uncomfortable i know i've heard certain female comedians 
tell jokes about sexism. And I feel really weird because they're working on how to deal with it mentally for themselves individually. And they're telling us as the audience. And as a man, I feel someone guilty in the jokes that they're telling but I think it's totally their right I don't think men necessarily have the right to tell the same jokes about sexism because I think it can promote it in a very backwards way so I think I don't know one standard I would say if I had to sort of give a blanket statement I think victims have the right to but not the obligation to tell jokes about maybe things that have been problematic for them I don't think oppressors or potential oppressors or aggressors etc have that right all the time I think we can all make social commentaries on things that we share but that would be one standard, I think, that I would talk about. I agree. I think comedy needs to be unique, specific, and personal. So to elaborate on that, I think unique, I think a big word that's thrown around in comedy is hack. So if something is hack, it's been done before. And that's the worst thing you can be as a comedian. So comedy has to be unique. And that's a standard you can judge it on, I think, empirically. If you've seen this before, it's not great comedy. Specific, people talk about broad comedy, and the reason that broad comedy doesn't appeal to some people with a more sophisticated comedy palette or people who like to believe they have a more sophisticated palette is because it's not specific. Two and a half men, Big Bang Theory, they're general nerds. They're not even specific nerds. They're, he's a general Lothario. We get he's a Lothario That's and now there are all these general jokes. And we sell out those characters for jokes all the time and that's because it's broad comedy. And finally, personal. So I think this speaks to your point of a male comedian can't tell the same jokes about women that a female comedian can. Your perspective should inform your comedy. And if you're doing jokes about your experience, then it's hard. At least I don't, couldn't find it offensive. If you're telling jokes about your life, then how can anyone be offended? You are, you know, you have ownership over your own life and experience. So if your comedy is coming from that place... I'm not going to say it can't be offensive, but it, it's authentic at least. Mike, before we wrap up this episode, do you have any closing thoughts or things you'd like to leave our audience with? Perhaps questions that you'd like to hear what other people think? Well, there are a lot of comedians I love who I like to point out because I think their comedy is unique, specific, and personal. Simon Rich is incredible. He's wrote for SNL. He was the youngest writer ever hired there. He also has, I think, six books and he has a new show on FX called Man Seeking Woman. He's really great. And he just wrote for Pixar, who are probably the best storytellers out there right now. Simon Amstel is a great British comedian who's recently come to the U.S. Louis C.K., obviously, Bill Burr, Roy Scovel, Chelsea Peretti, I really like now. Sarah Silverman is a great. <laughs> Michael Che, I could go on. <laughs> Absolutely, and I'll be sure to link all of these comedians in post and put them in the episode description and Mike before we before we close it up thank you very much for joining us I really love this conversation yeah thanks for having me we want to make this a conversation among not simply a conversation between we would love to hear your input criticism thoughts and reviews if you're willing to share them and Hector how might our audience go about that sure you can visit us on Facebook at Stride and Saunter we have a Twitter Stride and Saunter you can email us suggestions or comments at strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And please visit our website, strideandsaunter.com. And of course, thank you all for listening. We really appreciate it. And as always, from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Hector Marrero. I am 5 foot 10. <laughs>